for decades, it was in the interest of the U.S. federal government to demonstrate falsely that the pharmacology of cannabis was all about THC. THC on its own is a lousy drug. Uh, it's very poorly tolerated. It's very disorienting. Uh, it tends to produce dysphoria rather than euphoria. And anyone who has tried both will tell you that it's totally different uh, to the effects that people get from cannabis. This is the Cannabis Enigma, cutting through the smoke to have informed, serious conversations for regular people. Hi, I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman. And I'm Alana Goldberg, in lockdown again. Right, so I escaped the lockdown, and I am speaking to you from inside a rental car on a farm in northern Greece. Yeah, lucky you. But none of that can take away from how excited I am about sharing this episode. I interviewed Dr. Ethan Russo, who is one of, if not the premier cannabis researcher working today. And basically everybody I speak to agrees that he's one of the most knowledgeable people about the plant, the science, and the medicine out there today. Yeah, quite a rock star, really. So I don't want to take up too much time here because we should really just let you listen to the interview. But we covered so much from why cannabis is such a unique plant and its ability to treat a whole gamut of diseases and medical conditions to the problematic nature of what's available to patients and consumers these days. And really, let's just let's get to the interview. Yeah, but before we do, we've got another special segment at the end of this episode, right? Yeah. Our partners at Americans for Safe Access interviewed a Canadian medical cannabis patient, a woman named Sue Luton with Lyme disease, about her journey with medical cannabis. And it's actually a really fitting uh, addition to the Ethan Russo interview. Great. So stick around for that after the interview and enjoy. Dr. Ethan Russo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I want to dive right into it and start with a question about the theory of endocannabinoid deficiency. Can you explain the theory and what led you to it and where our understanding of it stands today, four or five years later? Well, it's actually a lot longer. I first uh, formulated the theory in a publication that was part of a book in 2001. But as a neurologist, I was clearly aware that uh, many diseases that we saw in practice were related to uh, neurotransmitter deficiencies. And although this is overly simplistic, one of the things that happens in dementia, particularly Alzheimer's disease, is a deficiency of acetylcholine, the memory molecule, neurotransmitter in the brain. Similarly, in Parkinson's disease, we have uh, deficiency of dopamine function. And depression, to some extent, is related to possible deficiencies of serotonin, although it's actually much more complicated. So having an awareness of the endocannabinoid system, I wondered why would there not be uh, disorders in humans that related to uh, what I called a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency? In thinking about it, how would that be manifest? Well, we know that the endocannabinoid system, among its various functions, uh, regulates and modulates mood. Uh, it regulates and modulates pain uh, and many other functions. So I wondered about disorders that might be common in humans where there was a constellation of, of symptoms that would indicate the possibility of endocannabinoid deficiency. And the three that really came to mind were migraine, irritable bowel syndrome, and fibromyalgia. Now, these disorders actually have a lot in common. 
in that they're all what are called diagnoses of exclusion, which is a way of saying that there are no specific tests for them. You can't scan for them, can't do blood tests for them. But they all involve uh, a sort of hypersensitivity to pain. Uh, in the case of migraine, it's headaches, but also uh, painful stimuli such as noise and uh, bright light. Uh, for irritable bowel, it's uh, an acute awareness of the gut and uh, phenomena that normally don't hurt are quite painful to people with that condition. And with fibromyalgia, you've got a generalized often um, increase uh, in pain sensitivity. Uh, certain muscles or fibrous tissues may hurt to a great extent, but um, examining the tissue reveals no specific problem to explain it. Uh, additionally, in fibromyalgia, people are beset by anxiety and depression, and especially uh, sleep disturbance. Um, the other thing that these three conditions have in common is that conventional medicines often work quite poorly in treating them, whereas many of the people who have them gain a lot of benefit from treatment with cannabis. Um, given that the cannabis usually contains THC, it indicates that perhaps the THC is replacing endocannabinoids that are deficient in these disorders. Uh, so that's the basic outline of the idea behind the theory, uh, which has been corroborated subsequently, and we can talk about that. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about, you know, what work has been done on that since. I interviewed Dr. Adia Ran about a year ago, and he mentioned that in his uh, studies on, on cannabis and CBD with autistic children, that he was looking at the possibility of whether uh, an endocannabinoid deficiency or or, or misfunction was, was playing a role there. Sure. Uh, is, are there other areas where, where that kind of work is taking place? Right. So um, I published an article on this subject in 2004 in more detail than the first publication in 2001. Uh, one of the things I proposed there would be uh, doing a study in which people had a lumbar puncture, spinal tap, to look at the cerebrospinal fluid that surrounds the spinal cord in the brain and to measure endocannabinoid levels directly. Uh, but I realized that doing such a study, at least in my country, wouldn't get through uh, an institutional review board or ethics committee. But subsequently in 2008 in Italy, Sarchielli et al. were able to do that exact study. Um, and they showed a remarkable difference um, with low uh, anandamide levels in people with migraine as compared to control patients that didn't uh, have a diagnosis of migraine. So this was the first objective proof of the existence of a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. But subsequently, there have been a lot of corroboratory uh, studies, including autism, as you mentioned, uh, being related to this phenomenon. Also, a very interesting study uh, done by uh, Matthew Hill et al., um, looking at people who were exposed to the 9-11 tragedy um, uh, after September 11th, 2001. And there were two groups. There were people that were involved in those events who had manifestations of post-traumatic stress, and then people who were there but didn't end up with diagnosis of post-traumatic stress. And when they compared endocannabinoid function uh, between the two, there were, again, remarkable, statistically significant differences. Um, and then there have been genetic studies that uh, show, in some instances, a uh, difference in um, the cannabinoid receptors um, in people that might have one of these disorders. Um, but, you know, the, there certainly is a lot of corroboration at this point, uh, some years later, uh, for this concept. Um, and uh, it's been cited uh, a couple of hundred times in the literature, um, sometimes mentioned as a theory, but sometimes uh, with supporting data. You mentioned the receptors. I was going to ask, is it mostly surrounding the levels of, of endocannabinoids or also the availability of the receptors? Well, it could be either. Um, 
you know, to explain that, I would discuss what we call endocannabinoid tone. And that would be a function of uh, three different things. The numbers of receptors and their activity level. We can have receptors that are active or inactive. Uh, the levels of the endocannabinoids themselves, particularly anandamide and 2-arachidonoglycerol. And third would be the activity of the enzymes that uh, produce them and break them down. Um, so endocannabinoid tone would be affected by changes in any of those three areas. The unfortunate thing is it's not simple uh, to test these things. Um, as I mentioned, uh, lumbar puncture is an invasive procedure, and we can't routinely do these just to figure out someone's endocannabinoid levels. Uh, blood tests could be done, uh, but there are problems with that. Um, anandamide uh, breaks down um, extremely rapidly uh, in the body. And so if you're taking a blood sample, it's got to be put on liquid nitrogen immediately and transported to a lab that can properly do the studies. The second problem is the levels of the endocannabinoids in the serum may or may not reflect the activity in the brain. Um, so there are times when they run in parallel, uh, but other times when there are divergences between one and the other. Um, so, I mean, the lovely thing in the future would be some kind of non-invasive scan of the brain that could answer these questions for us. And if we were to get there, assuming we will get there, and with the understanding that everybody's endocannabinoid system functions slightly differently with these types of variations, and with another assumption that we understand how different diseases uh, or, or conditions um, are correlated with those how far are we from being able to point to specific cannabis chemovars or that that could be particularly beneficial for for those conditions uh well you know the problem right now is with availability what we've got is a situation where for the most part uh, around the world we're still dealing with cannabis that is uh, mostly high thc and high myrcene uh, which is going to be very sedating, producing what we call colloquially couch lock, where the person feels immobilized. So that might be fine for the person that's trying to get to sleep, but it's not uh, at all good for the person that might need to work or study and function well in the process, um, and particularly for chronic pain conditions. Um, you know, we would really benefit from having better profiles that would have less myrcene um, more balanced between THC and CBD, which is going to decrease the side effect profile and also have the uh, a beneficial uh, profile of terpenoids that, again, may reduce associated adverse events um, and possibly help with other parameters, whether they be inflammation or mood. Um, so in a given instance, I, I feel I have a good idea of what a person might benefit from, but that's a far cry from saying uh, that they would be able to access a chemovar, a chemical variety of cannabis that would be appropriate for their treatment. You mentioned the different effects um, of different chemovars of different strains, and I want to jump to the, the plant side of things for a minute. In much of the cannabis world, recreational, medical alike, they use these terms indica and sativa to sort of describe uplifting and, and more sedative uh, of cannabis. And we know that those terms are generally not used correctly, um, and yet they're everywhere. I mean, if they're, if they're even real terms. Uh, how did that happen? And, and what, what should we be using? Uh, what terms should we be using to describe, you know, the, the different effects and, and types? Sure. Well, we need a little history to explain this. Um, so uh, cannabis sativa, or cultivated cannabis, is a name that's been in use for hundreds of years. Uh, usually Linnaeus gets credit for it, but it was used for two or three hundred years before him. Um, and uh, so he was, his accession, what he was describing uh, in his... Uh, uh, first books about this uh, was European hemp. Uh, so this is a tall plant 
uh, with narrow leaflets. A generation later, Lamarck in France described what he thought was a different species called Cannabis indica. So this was a sample from India. Uh, it was a bushier plant, but also with narrow leaflets. And that doesn't resemble at all today what most people think of as indica, which is more likely going to be a plant of, of Afghan genetics, uh, which is only about a meter in height and has very broad uh, leaflets uh, with a very pronounced sawtooth appearance to the leaflet edge. Um, so at one time, they, there could be chemical differences uh, between these different types of cannabis, but they all interbreed, and most people feel that uh, cannabis is one very uh, plastic uh, species. Um, what we should be dealing with is the chemical composition uh, of the material, uh, and that can only come with an, an, an analysis. It can't be um, deciphered based on what the plant looks like, how tall it is, whether, whether the leaflets are narrow or broad or any of those criteria. We have to know what's in it, what are the predominant cannabinoids and terpenoids, and then we'd have a good idea of what to expect in terms of results or effects when people use that chemovar. So I do prefer the term chemical variety or chemovar uh, technically, there is no such thing as strains in cannabis. There are strains of bacteria and strains of viruses, but um, uh, we use different terminology for plants and particularly for cannabis. And and of the tools available to people today, um, you know, you, in a practical sense, somebody walks into a dispensary and, you know, in some states you have access to, to certificates of analysis that, that give you you know, the terpenes and different cannabinoid levels. But otherwise, you're, you're stuck with this, this paradigm that, you know, as you said, doesn't really mean anything. Correct. So, yeah, in the olden days, it uh, was what, what was needed was a personal bioassay. Somebody tried the material. If they liked it, they bought it. Um, but uh, this is 2020. Um, my personal bias is that at point of sale, every consumer has the right and should have available a certificate of analysis that not only includes the cannabinoid and terpenoid profiles, but also safety parameters uh, so that they, they can know that uh, the material wasn't uh, laden with pesticides, uh, didn't have heavy metals in it, uh, was bacteriologically safe on uh, all those good things. Let's talk about the entourage effect. Sure. It's, it's one of the more astounding aspects of cannabis. It lends itself to this idea that cannabis is different than most other plants that medicines are derived from and that you're not looking at one active ingredient, but numerous compounds working in concert. Now, I've heard some argue that there's not actually any clinical evidence of the entourage effect and that the effects we attribute to it could be a minor cannabinoid or terpene that just hasn't yet been identified. And other researchers like Dedi Meiri are looking at you know, isolating specific combinations of, of compounds in the plant in order to achieve specific effects. Where, where did this idea come from? And it, are we thinking about it accurately? Okay. Well, uh, this originated uh, with Professor Mishulam and, and Ben Shabbat in 1998. They were initially discussing the entourage effect in relation to endocannabinoids. And it was the idea that uh, the big players... Uh, nandamide and 2-arachidonoglycerol seem to be synergized by the presence of related compounds, which on their own seemingly were inactive or very poorly active. Um, they gave an example of uh, PEA, palmitol ethanolamine, uh, markedly boosting uh, anti-inflammatory effects, uh, if I remember correctly. The next year, 1999, uh, they mentioned that the same thing could apply to uh, botanical synergy, um, the idea that um, plant extracts uh, were more effective than single ingredients derived from plants. So, you know, very much the situation in cannabis. 
Um, I certainly, that idea resonated with me and a lot of my subsequent work was uh, an effort to try and show these relationships and how synergy, a boosting of effect would work. Uh, now, people that say that there's no clinical evidence of this are, are wrong, I'm afraid. Uh, we've got a very good illustration uh, in the Sativex development program. Um, back about 2005, a study was done looking at uh, three arms in patients with uh, chronic cancer pain. There was placebo, there was a high THC extract, and there was a high THC THC extract uh, combined with a high CBD extract, what's now known as Sativex. So what happened was after a couple of weeks of treatment, there wasn't any real difference between the placebo and the high THC extract with respect to pain control in these cancer patients. However, the um, Sativex treatment group was statistically uh, significantly improved over the other two. And the only difference was the presence of cannabidiol uh, in Sativex as compared to the high THC extract. So that was clearly a demonstration of herbal synergy or the entourage effect at work. Uh, additionally, um, it, it has been difficult um, to get good research on this. Uh, in the United States, uh, people who are doing studies with cannabis are required um, to do any kind of randomized controlled trial. It must be with material from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is stored for a long time and has been demonstrated to be almost devoid of terpenoid content. So it's hard to show entourage effects if you don't have the right components in the material. Um, but um, currently underway at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, I'm uh, doing a study with Ryan Vondre in which we're, we're using um, naturally derived uh, THC with specific naturally derived uh, terpenoids in patients, randomized controlled trial uh, to try and show synergy of these ingredients. Uh, one of the first studies is almost done and the preliminary results definitely show an effect uh, that would be considered an entourage effect. Um, and there'll be a couple more and hopefully many more studies of a similar nature after that. So what we're attempting to do is sort of a deconstruction, reconstruction uh, to show that having these other components in cannabis with THC, with CBD, really can make a difference uh, in clinical effects. I believe in taming THC, you mentioned that terpenes are of pharmacological interest at concentrations of 0.05% and higher. Right. What, you know, how, how many are we talking about in, in the average chemovar uh, that people are, are getting yeah, great question. Well, uh, in the United States, uh, it's really primarily mercine that people are finding. Uh, certain places like in California, there might be uh, chemovars that are high in, high in terpinaline, but it's, it's a little unusual to see um, uh, limonene predominant variety or a linalool predominant variety. Uh, in extracts, we see a lot of caryophylline. Um, which is a helpful compound, um, but we're not seeing the variety that really uh, cannabis is, is capable, capable of producing. Um, so uh, part of this is a problem with uh, breeding practices. Uh, the market is very much uh, related to high THC chemovars. Uh, it is true that the recreational market uh, really dwarfs the medical market, but uh, we really haven't seen the capabilities uh, of cannabis uh, properly harnessed at this point. If if I understood what you said about your study, you're adding terpenoids not naturally in the the extract that you're that you're working with in order to create these combinations. Uh, yeah, let me be frank. Uh, we wouldn't be able to show anything useful using the night of cannabis in this instance because there's no, uh, there's uh, very little terpenoid content. Um, 
let me mention something else. For decades, um, it was uh, in the interest of the U.S. federal government to demonstrate falsely that the pharmacology of cannabis was all about THC. When synthetic THC as Marinol was FDA approved in 1985 for treatment of nausea associated with chemotherapy, um, they thought, uh, again, incorrectly, that that would obviate the need uh, for medicinal forms of cannabis. But that never happened. THC on its own is a lousy drug. Uh, it's very poorly tolerated. It's very disorienting. Uh, it tends to produce dysphoria rather than euphoria. Um, and anyone who has tried both will tell you that it's totally different uh, to the effects that people get from cannabis. Um, so um, there have also been a couple of recent studies that purported to uh, negate the idea of the entourage effect, but uh, they were quite limited in their scope. They were really just um, uh, looking at a few terpenoids and whether they had activity at uh, the cannabinoid receptors. But uh, most terpenoids are going to work through other mechanisms entirely, so they really uh, didn't negate the entourage effect. They just uh, demonstrated that some of them didn't work on the cannabinoid receptors, but we knew that 15 years ago. On, in relation to a question you asked earlier, there have been over 200 terpenoids that have been found in cannabis, none unique to cannabis at this point, but there are perhaps 17 that are found uh, routinely uh, on analysis. But again, uh, they're just a few uh, that are, are, are seen to be predominant, and that, that's unfortunate. The National Institute of Drug Abuse recently put out a call for proposals on an idea of setting a standard dose of THC in cannabis products. Now, obviously, they have a very different point of departure, uh, mainly looking at abuse and, and studying it. But could there be a potential benefit either for research or for treatment in some sort of standard dose for cannabis, be it for THC or something else? And is that even possible considering everything we've already discussed? Uh, sure, but it's a very difficult thing. Um, there's a tremendous difference uh, in the pharmacokinetics of different routes of administration. What I mean by that is when someone vaporizes or smokes cannabis, uh, they have um, an almost immediate effect, a very sharp up upswing uh, in the amount in the uh, serum and in the brain on a rapid downswing. Uh, this is totally different than what happens when it's taken orally, where um, the amount in the blood may stay very low over time, but the person might be very high. So the serum levels don't reflect what's going on in the brain. Um, so, you know, there's a difference between 10 milligrams of uh, THC that's inhaled, uh, which is actually a very big dose if someone's actually getting that much. Um, and 10 milligrams taken orally, which again is going to affect some people who don't have tolerance uh, quite markedly. Um, but the time co contours are totally different. Um, it also depends on uh, endocannabinoid tone, uh, patients' prior experience. Do they have tolerance uh, to the material or not? Um, so uh, a, a nice concept, uh, but very hard to put uh, into practical effect. I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. I, I'm just saying that uh, it's a real challenge uh, to be able to come up with useful data. Without that data, we often see the recommendation to start low and go slow. Right. If I'm not mistaken, I remember seeing in one of your papers a slightly different version, which was start low, go slow, and stay low. Uh, can you elaborate on why and, and how low? Sure. I mean, if we were going to give general rules, uh, 2.5 milligrams of uh, THC is going to be a threshold dose. Some people will feel it, some will not. Five milligrams is going to be a moderate dose that most people will feel, certainly. And 10 milligrams uh, would be too much uh, for the person who has no prior experience or tolerance. Um, in general, I like to see people take 
a total of somewhere between 15 and 30 milligrams of THC a day on the outside, the exception being uh, patients with cancer that might require high doses for uh, primary treatment of a tumor. Um, but beyond that level, 30 milligrams a day, uh, what we know from prior clinical studies is you definitely increase the side effect profile, but you rarely increase the benefit on treating whatever the target symptom might be. Uh, in other words, there's no guarantee with a higher dose you're going to treat pain more effectively, uh, but you certainly are going to be contributing to side effects. Um, and again, this is all subject to variation depending on other components that may or may not be in the cannabis. So if there's a good amount of, of CBD present, it increases the latitude that you have in THC dosing. Um, you can increase what's called uh, the therapeutic index um, towards uh, being able to take more THC with less problems. And what about with high CBD chemovars? And when you're actually looking to CBD as the primary yeah. uh, active ingredient, do you, do you need the same uh, caution, let's say? Uh, no, not as much. Uh, CBD is not as potent on a milligram per milligram basis. Um, so if we're talking about pure CBD, we usually need doses that are much higher. Um, for uh, acute anxiety, it's a few hundred milligrams. Uh, for treatment of psychosis, it's uh, somewhere around 800 milligrams a day. Uh, for treatment of severe epilepsy syndromes, such as Dravet and Lennox-Gastaut, it's 20 milligrams per kilogram per day of a pure substance. But interestingly, uh, when this has been analyzed, um, uh, it's been shown that uh, CBD doses can be effective at about 20% of that level if there are other components available. Um, and I'm fond of saying that there's nothing that CBD does that won't be, won't be enhanced by having at least a tiny amount of THC present as well. Um, and additionally, it would apply to terpenoid content, um, can certainly uh, add to the adjunctive value. Um, for instance, if we're treating anxiety, it's very helpful to have uh, some of the terpenoid linalool aboard because uh, it's a very prominent uh, potent agent in treating anxiety without being overtly sedating and without being addictive at all. You mentioned in one of your previous answers uh, tolerance and you know whether somebody has it specifically toward THC. How, how does that work? And when you develop a tolerance to, you know, what people refer to as the euphoric effects or high of, of THC, does it lose its other, do you develop a tolerance to the most of the therapeutic effects as well? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, yeah, one of the beauties of cannabis as a therapeutic agent is, yes, you can become accustomed to psychoactive effects and work through them. And uh, with careful dose escalation, over time, maybe two weeks or so, people can get quite accustomed to even higher doses of THC. What we want them to do is use the lowest dose that treats symptom without, symptoms without producing intoxication. But the beauty of cannabis is even though one gets accustomed to the psychoactive effects, um, benefits on uh, whatever you're treating remain. In other words, uh, if we have a chronic pain patient uh, and they get benefit from using cannabis, um, as long as that condition is stable, uh, it's not getting worse, um, we don't see dose escalation over time. And in fact, uh, there are many people who have taken uh, cannabis therapeutically for decades that are using the same dose. Uh, so it's quite different to what we see with opioids, where often there is dose escalation, increase in side effects, uh, dependency, craving, and all those uh, problems. Uh, I wanted to ask you what you're working on now. You, I've seen uh, your new company in the news a bit. Credo, is that how it's pronounced? Yes, Credo Science. Uh, so we've got a variety of things. We're what 
what's called uh, an intellectual property holding company, which means that uh, we have ideas that we develop uh, and these will lead to products and services. And I realize that's nebulous, but um, we have two diagnostics that uh, we're developing for diseases that have no current uh, tests, uh, just clinical uh, diagnosis. Um, we have a supplement uh, that we're working on. Uh, we have a novel extraction technique. Um, we're also doing formulation work uh, for different companies uh, to help them with what we hope will be ideal preparations uh, for a variety of conditions. Uh, so we're covering a lot of territory. My last question, and I believe I saw you hint at it in a different interview, um, so I hope you can talk about it. Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. It's something that's become, that, that the medical um, establishment has become more aware of as cannabis use becomes more prevalent. Do we know if it's related to one's endocannabinoid system or deficiency, or is it in, you know, it's changes that take place in the body? Uh, what do we know about it today? And, and sure. is it something that can be treated? Yeah, a very topical uh, area. It is something that we're working on, and we'll uh, admit that. What we know about this condition is that it affects select individuals. Uh, what we know about the people that get it is, uniformly, they have taken uh, high doses of high THC cannabis over a long period of time. Uh, and then they get a very unusual syndrome. Uh, there's a period of anxiety and nausea that leads to um, severe um, nausea and vomiting with abdominal pain. Um, uh, doesn't respond well to conventional drugs, um, but there's a very characteristic finding, which is people get relief from hot showers or baths. Uh, it also may respond to application of a capsaicin ointment. That's the active ingredient in chili peppers uh, that's applied to the skin. Um, so uh, it's still being researched. Uh, we have some insights into this uh, that we hope to publish soon, but that's about all I can say at this point. I know I said that was going to be my last question, but I, that's why I should never say it's my last question. Um the other thing that, that I've seen uh, written about your company and your research recently is uh, the idea or the prospect of cannabis-based disinfectants. Now, this is something that's been around for decades. Um, you know, it was used in, you know, in the mid-20th century as, a, as an antimicrobial. And you know, I, we had uh, Dr. Vincent Maeda on the podcast a few months ago who's working on cannabinoid treatments for intractable wounds. I interviewed a dentist who's using it for, for oral health care. And if I'm not mistaken, you are looking at it in the context of a disinfectant that could, be, that could work on COVID. Um, why, why does that work or why, why should that work? Uh, well, there are many components of cannabis that have antibiotic effects. Uh, and this includes the cannabinoids and terpenoids. And it's just a matter of finding, again, the best... Uh, combinations or profiles that are going to have the widest spectrum uh, that could be applied in that fashion. Uh, so that is another thing that we're working on. Okay. Dr. Russo, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. My name is Dustin McDonald, and I'm the policy director for Americans for Safe Access, which is the oldest and largest national nonprofit organization of patients, doctors, scientists, and citizens who are promoting safe and legal access to cannabis. Today, we're speaking with medical cannabis patient Sue Luton regarding applications of medical cannabis to treat her health condition and some of the general challenges of participating in medical cannabis as a government-run health program. The background of this interview is a recent U.S. Centers for Disease control solicitation that Americans for Safe Access participated in, in which CDC sought outreach for, to patients, caregivers, and physicians, and they wanted to understand what the experiences 
were of these individuals with managing acute and chronic pain. Specifically, the CDC was interested in discussing experiences with the use of opioids for pain management versus alternative treatment options as part of their ongoing effort to update the Center's 2016 interim guidance, Guidelines for Prescribing Opioids for Chronic Pain. The hour-long discussion that ASA had with CDC covered the limitations of current FDA-approved pain management products, um, ranging everything from um, over-the-counter medications to prescription medications that are designed to address chronic and acute pain and the utility of those medicines and really kind of aiding with that. And then what was encouraging to ASA through that discussion was really CDC's acknowledgement that many of the patients and caregivers that they spoke with talked a lot about the utilization of medical cannabis to treat chronic and acute pain. So that's really kind of the backdrop to our conversation today. So to get things started, Sue, I wanted to ask you if you can tell our listeners about why you chose to try to utilize medical cannabis to treat your health condition and what you noticed worked or didn't work for you. Sure. I'd love to help you with that. So my Lyme specialist, um, he's also an endocrinologist, suggested that I try it. He said he found it was helping Lyme patients. So he gave me some medical hemp CBD oil. And then my family doctor back in Canada had just returned from working a two-year stint at an integrative cancer center. He'd been prescribing it, and he supported my use of it. I honestly don't think that I would have tried it if two of my doctors hadn't suggested it. But then cannabis worked so well for me along with herbal tinctures and healthy additions to my diet, that I decided to talk to other people about how I was using it and how it might help them. So then my daughter, who's an artist, she had her own business, and she said, you know, Mom, you can monetize what you're doing. So I ended up creating a business with her help. And then my chemistry son, he's in last year chemistry, he helped me understand the science better and developed an infusion calculator and a dryer calculator so that I could understand how, like how many milligrams I was using. Because Canada posts the uh, lab results, a lot of the medical producers post the lab results. So that was really helpful for me because I began to make my own medicine. Um, but then I also discovered in the process that CBD doesn't work that well for me. Interesting. You make a lot of really good points there, both with respect to, again, what works and what doesn't work in that whole journey. But to your the point of your specific journey, really, um, and that there isn't a lot of guidance out there for cannabis patients in trying to navigate the journey of using medical cannabis to treat their health condition, the underlying condition, associated symptoms. So I was wondering, you know, you make a really good point there with regard to CBD. You know, there's the ongoing media narrative around it essentially advertises CBD as this kind of panacea product, one size fits all approach. And this really illustrates, illustrates a fundamental flaw in traditional medicine that we want to encourage federal cannabis regulators to avoid. And that's this notion that there's this one size fits all approach that's appropriate when in fact, patient health disorders tend to cover a range rather than um, really responding to a one size fits all treatment approach. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you noticed about CBD not working for you, what you noticed did work for you, whether it was whole plant cannabis or, or something else, and your thoughts on kind of this this effort by traditional medicine and, and cannabis regulators to move in this kind of one-size-fits-all direction. Sure. So my Lyme specialist gave me medical hemp paste, and I'm not – I think it was full-spectrum medical hemp. And I found that it helped me sleep. Um, but that's about all it did. It maybe slightly improved my mood when I went for treatments, when I would go in for my IV treatments at the Lyme Clinic. But then when I got back to Canada, I got a medical cannabis 
prescription and I began with CBD oil and it was an isolate. And I found the same thing. It only really helped me with sleep, which is, it, that works for some people that way, but CBD can also make people more hyper and not sleep. But for me, it helped me sleep. But I wasn't really finding much benefit to it. And I titrated up my dose for about six weeks, I think. And I was also really fortunate because the licensed producer that I had, the one that I had, because I started with one, they had a pharmacist on staff. So they really helped me titrate my dose. And I started adding in more THC oil isolate. And it wasn't until I transitioned completely over to THC only that I started to notice some good changes. But then I started to use flour and vape flour and the relief was incredible and it was instant. And then I started to make my own medicine using different fats and flour only, THD dominant flour. And that's when I started to have the best results. So that was kind of my journey. Got it. Okay. Okay. Now, with respect to cannabis isolates, whether it's CBD or CBG or CBN or THC, talk to us about, you know, you mentioned your experience with CBD and how that wasn't effective and how kind of whole plant cannabis or flower to our listeners was more effective for you. Why do you think that is? And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, cannabis as in whole plant cannabis and the importance of it being fresh and, and it's limited shelf life and, and how important it is for patients to have access to kind of fresh medicine for whole plant cannabis? Well, I think it comes back to the debate between pharma drugs and plant medicine. I think that's really where we're at. I think there are some that want to turn cannabis into more pharmaceutical drugs or isolates and there may be great benefit for some patients there. I'm the kind of patient who doesn't really respond well or assimilate um, like vitamin capsules, things in capsules, not even my own homemade cannabis oil in a capsule. Um, and I seem to do better just using the fresh flower and as I've grown my own medicine now and harvested my first crop, that medicine is the best medicine that I've ever had. And we have to remember that cannabis is an herb, it's a plant. So when we harvest plants in our garden and we treat them well and we build up the soil, then they taste better, right? Tomatoes from our garden taste better than ones that you know, come, say, from California up to Canada. So I think cannabis is the same. And then the other component is in Canada, all of the cannabis that we have, it, uh, like it has to be tested by independent labs. And most of it is radiated or e-beamed. And, and we really haven't delved enough into things like that to understand if that damages some of the chemicals in cannabis. So we, we still have to do no, more research into these things, I think. Couldn't agree more there, even though we've got a lot of robust lab testing requirements at federal government levels in Canada, provincial levels in Canada, state levels here in the U.S. Um, there's a long way to go before we truly understand everything that we're doing to the cannabis plant across the supply chain before it reaches the consumer and what product you're left with at the end um, and its medical value at that point. Um, so it's been really incredible talking with you today and getting a deeper sense of your journey as a cannabis patient, particularly one with Lyme disease, which I understand is a challenging one. Um, I have Lyme disease myself and have, have battled with it since 1994, so I understand where you're coming from. Are there any other thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners 
regarding your journey as a medical cannabis patient or the work you're doing now related to medical cannabis education and training that you want to share? I would love to because I've been very, very busy during COVID. So during this time, um, I found a group of women. Um, There's going to be men too. We've got some men who are going to come on board and help us. But we formed the first um, Canadian Medical Cannabis Educators Association. And we plan to be a nonprofit. We plan to learn all we can about cannabis, especially the science of it. And we're getting professionals um, in cannabis from all over the place. And they're coming to speak to our group. And we're learning from these people. And then we want to move forward and teach the general public using events and different things and just kind of be a resource. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Sue. You're so welcome. Before we conclude today's podcast, I did want to mention two other Americans for Safe Access initiatives. The first is this Saturday, ASA will be hosting a webinar titled Medical Cannabis Symposium for Pediatric Neurological Conditions. And the focus of the webinar will be just that. Listeners will have a chance to hear from incredible speakers from the physician and science side who are directly working in the field applying medical cannabis to pediatric conditions, as well as attorneys, uh, caregivers, and patients who have been involved directly in weighing in to change state laws to permit academic administration or administration of medical cannabis on school campuses, particularly for youth. The other item I wanted to mention is that Americans for Safe Access has just launched our Get Out the Vote campaign. Uh, Obviously, you've heard a lot of the news about the need to have a plan for the day you need to get out to vote for how you're going to vote this year, have a backup plan and have a backup plan to that. ACE has done a nice job of organizing some resources on our homepage for voters to plug into so they can start organizing their plans. Again, all this information is available right on our homepage, which is safeaccessnow.org. This episode was produced by myself and Matan Whale, edited and mixed by myself. The Cannabis Enigma is a co-production of Americans for Safe Access and the Conigma. And if you like what you just listened to, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us, and you'll get an alert next time we drop an episode.